Hello, welcome to Old Testament Studies, an unacademic modern history. My name is Nick, and my goal is to bring Old Testament scholarship from the ivory towers of academia to the common language of every podcast listener. I want to break down the technical conversations and methods of analyzing the Old Testament so that everyone can be involved in the academic conversations about what the Old Testament is, where it came from, and what its message is. Each episode, I want to look at the life and academic contributions of one modern Old Testament scholar to understand how their ideas developed and show their impact on our understanding of the Old Testament. So this week is Matthew Tyndall. Matthew Tyndall was born in Devon in 1657. His father was a reverend, and both his parents were related to prominent English families. Tyndall studied law at Lincoln College in Oxford under George Hicks in the early 1670s. He then moved to Exeter College and graduated with a BA in 1676. Two years later, he was elected to a law fellowship at All Souls in 1678, which he held until his death in 1733. And he also earned a Bachelor's of Law in 1679, followed by a Doctor of Civil Law in 1685. However, though he had a stable position at All Souls College, he found himself caught in the religious changes happening during his day. His inflammatory religious writings and views didn't help that, and the same year that he earned his Doctor of Civil Law, which was 1685, he became an advocate in the Arch Court of Canterbury, dealing with matters of ecclesiastical law, and announced he was a Roman Catholic. This was the same year that James II came to the throne, so it might have been for political reasons as much as a religious conviction. James II was Catholic and wanted universities to become more influenced by Catholicism. In this pro-papal atmosphere, Tyndale made a bid in 1687 to become the Warden of All Souls, but lost James's appointee, Leopold Finch. The loss of the position, coincidentally, came at the same time as Tyndale's conversion back to Anglicanism, which he formally announced when he received communion in April of 1688. Following the English Revolution of 1688, Tyndale served the new monarchs, William and Mary, as deputy judge advocate of their majesty's fleet during 1689. For his services, Tyndale received an annual payment of 200 pounds, and Tyndale's obituaries, which appeared in several London newspapers in 1733, uh, noted his great legal skills as well as his fellowship at All Souls. So, as you may have noticed, Tyndale worked in English law, not in theology or the Old Testament. However, these were not super separated at the time, as our first episode on Grotius probably indicated. Tyndale wrote about the relationship of the church to the state in a work called The Rights of the Christian Church. Here he talks about his dislike of the priesthood, and he essentially moves the church into one wing of the government that is ruled by the king. 
That is to say, he didn't like the church being a competing power and believed that the church leaders corrupted true religion to benefit themselves. This, among his other works, were typically published anonymously because Tyndale had very little to gain by writing things against the church, but had a lot to lose, and specifically his fellowship at All Souls. I am going to avoid his political religious views in this episode, but I do want to acknowledge them. So in the next section, I will try to primarily focus on his book, Christianity as Old as the Creation, which has often been dubbed the Deist's Bible. So, before we get into that, let's take a quick break. Welcome back. So, the full title of Matthew Tyndale's work is Christianity as Old as the Creation or The Gospel, a Republication of the Religion of Nature. So, this was the first of a planned two-part work, but Tyndale died before the second book was published. And even this first part had four editions and caused waves of controversy. The challenge that Tyndale was providing was his claim to be a Christian deist. I know that sounds strange, but you have to kind of redefine both of those to figure out what he means by Christian and deist. Normally deists are thought of as denying anything miraculous or unreasonable. Life is guided by logic and supernatural laws and nothing else. Tyndale doesn't exactly see it this way. For him, reason does reign supreme, but God is also active in the world. Recent scholarship on Tyndale and other English deists during his time have noted that deism in England was different from deism on the continent. French deists tended toward a god that started the world and walked away, while English deists often viewed God as still enlightening and upholding the world. However, God's upholding of the world doesn't mean breaking logic or natural order, it means preserving it. So, Matthew Tyndall believed in miracles and even claimed the apostles performed miracles and they could even raise the dead. He also believed that God continually implanted the law of nature into us every day. So this is a daily revelation of religion and truth from God. As Tyndale said, quote, He, God, continues daily to implant it in the minds of all men. And when we think about moral truths, we clearly see their truth because of, quote, God himself who immediately illuminates them, end quote. Tyndale also believed God was in such close relationship with people that he had communicated with people in biblical times. 
For example, he said Solomon was, quote, inspired with wisdom from above and had conferences with God himself, end quote. Tyndale also took language straight from the Bible and applied it to his belief system, though perhaps in an overly rigid way. He claimed, quote, Are not we, in a stricter sense, the children of God? And is not God, from his innate goodness and equity, under an obligation to treat us more kindly than earthly parents do their best beloved children? End quote. So, this comes straight from the biblical text. I mean, think of passages like Psalm 2, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or the numerous references to the daughter of Zion. Or the references to God hiding the people of Israel under his wing like a bird with chicks. Tyndale is taking this imagery to argue that God is our parent and perfect. He must be kind and loving toward us even more than the most perfect earthly parents. In a standard definition of deism, this is really a hard statement. God is supposed to be unfeeling. He started the world spinning and then walked away and stopped caring. Tyndale was often called a deist, but he didn't really fall into this idea. God was a parent to humans who treated them kindly and continues to reveal truth and natural law to them daily. This God is active and honestly described in terms ripped directly from the Bible. Tyndale even recommended prayer. He believed that we had a duty to pray because prayer acknowledges God's constant goodness to us and keeps us in a constant state of dependence on him. As he said, quote, prayer itself, God knowing beforehand what we will ask, chiefly becomes a duty as it raises in us a due contemplation of the divine attributes and an acknowledgement of his great and constant goodness and serves to keep us in a constant sense of our dependence on him. End quote. All this is to say that his conception of deism is a little softer than we might think. He is not advocating for a distant God that cannot be touched or doesn't want to be touched. God is enlightening us. He is our parent. Prayer is an appropriate response to God. To return to God as the parent, Tyndall focused on the goodness and kindness of God to his children. One of the hardest things for Tyndall was the concept of revelation. For God to treat his children fairly and impartially, special revelation could not exist, at least not in a way that provides eternal salvation for some and not others. An often cited reference is Jonas Proast, who claimed that in 1696, Tyndale, while strolling in the quad before dinner, declared, that there neither is nor can be any revealed religion. So, to be fair, Tyndall never published this opinion directly, but he got to essentially the same point. God cannot play favorites and only give special revelation to certain people. Now, before you think that he is about to throw the whole Bible into the trash, he's going to take a turn here. 
The problem isn't that special revelation is impossible entirely. It is that special revelation cannot provide more than natural religion. Don't worry, I'll get deeper into his concept of natural religion in a minute. So the point is the Bible can be true, but only in the parts that agree with the observable and logical. Therefore, the Trinity, original sin, justification by faith, and the atonement are all wrong. These doctrines are not part of natural religion and contradict God's impartial fairness. That leads to the next part. How did Tyndale understand Christianity and specifically the Bible? It seems like he gutted most of its doctrines, at least the New Testament ones, though original sin, justification by faith, and atonement could be found in the Old Testament in some form. I'm thinking specifically of Moses believed and it was credited to him as righteousness, or the sacrificial system of the temple. But remember the full title of his book, Christianity as Old as the Creation, or The Gospel, a Republication of the Religion of Nature. This implies that nature has priority over revelation. So here the definition of the religion of nature, as provided by Matthew Tyndall, can help us. So Matthew Tyndall claimed, quote, By natural religion, I understand the belief of the existence of a God and the sense and practice of those duties which result from the knowledge we, by our reason, have of him and his perfections and of ourselves and our own imperfections, and of the relation we stand in to him and to our fellow creatures, end quote. So this is a reasonable faith, something almost innate to us, and perhaps not even innate since God is implanting a knowledge of himself and morality within us daily. But it is something logical and universal, provided to all. So when Tyndall says Christianity as old as the creation, he is redefining Christianity. For him, Christianity is just an imperfect retelling of the natural religion. It must be checked for accuracy against the original revelation of that natural religion. So the specific and historical origin of the Bible is only a small retelling. It is a republication, as he would say, of the universal and ahistorical natural revelation. But wait, this doesn't mean that history played no role at all in Tyndale's argument. In fact, history is how we know that the Bible is derivative and not original nor the sole holder of salvation. One of our previous podcast subjects, Voltaire, wrote an essay on the customs and the spirit of the nations, where he elevated Egyptians, Arabs, Indians, and Chinese history over the Jews. He explicitly, he explicitly rejected the standard Christian framework of history 
and asked why the Jewish people accomplished so little. Well, 25 years before Voltaire, Tyndale did something similar. He praised other civilizations outside the Old Testament and reassigned some of the Old Testament customs to other people. For example, he ignored the scriptural account of circumcision as a divine institution pioneered by the Jews and states that, quote, the Egyptians and some other pagan nations first instituted the practice. He then goes on to claim that this practice is against the dictates of natural religion and divine goodness. So, not only is the practice not original to the Israelites, it's a bad practice anyhow. So, Tyndale's point that revelation is universal leads him to a different view of history. He treats all centuries more or less equally and finds secular origins for practices that the Old Testament claims come from divine revelation. He even goes so far as to claim that the practice of excommunication by the Roman Catholic and Church of England comes from the Druids. I challenge that argument because Ezra and Nehemiah clearly have a concept of excommunication from their communities, as do some parts of Deuteronomy, specifically chapters 7 and 23, and also some of the casting out that is talked about in some of the Pauline letters. That aside, the point being he traces that to the Druids, and claims that that is a pagan practice that the Pope and even the King of England, who is running the Church of England, have adopted. In any event, this view of history leaves Tyndale in a tricky spot. He asserts that God is actively involved in revealing himself to all people all the time. He also holds that some of the Bible is true, at least so long as it aligns with reason. So how did the pure spirituality become corrupted? Or when was the time that religious purity actually existed? Tyndale is tracing corrupting influences. He must address the place or time before the corruptions entered. Well, the origin of pure natural religion is related to its loss. So Tyndale believed that self-seeking priests corrupted the faith. This makes sense when some of the criticisms are church practices like papal succession and excommunication. People got power hungry, distorted true religion, they began relying on superstition rather than reason. If this is the case, then religious purity is in the past. The primitive forms of Christianity and even other religions are more morally and spiritually superior to the full-blown version of them that has developed. As Tyndale stated, quote, While every church or congregation of Christians, as in the apostolic days, chose and maintained their own ministers and ordered among themselves whatever required a special determination, no inconveniences happened. 
But as soon as this simple and natural method was broken and the clergy were formed into a closely united body, with that subordination and dependence they had on one another, the Christian world was enslaved and religion forced to give way to destructive superstition. So this brings me back to the Bible, and specifically the Old Testament. If you have read your Hebrew Bible, you'll know that much of it is Israel-specific. How do you read a text as pure natural religion that is just a restatement of what all people know by reason? Well, use the same method as so many of the previous writers we have talked about, allegory. Let me give you an example in the fall of Adam and Eve. First, Tyndall argued that it would have been impossible for the serpent to have spoken to Eve. First, because language would not have existed, and second, because serpents cannot speak. I know this seems like an arcane argument, but it was a legitimate issue in his day. Some responses to his work argued that language started with God speaking the universe into existence in Genesis 1, so the serpent, or Adam and Eve, could easily have learned language by the time of the fall. Again, this sounds odd from my standpoint, but at different points in history, people argue in different ways. So, we allegorize the fall. It leads to an explanation of the degradation of pure natural religion. The fall of Adam and Eve is replaced by a later fall as a phase of, quote, simple and natural methods, end quote, that gives way under clerical influence to destructive superstition. Tyndale, though, claims to be a Christian, so he sees Jesus' revelation as a message of this natural religion. And more specifically, he said, quote, The business of the Christian dispensation was to destroy all those traditional revelations and restore, free from all idolatry, the true, primitive, and natural religion implanted in mankind from the creation. End quote. Notice that Tyndall says restore. Jesus was getting back to the true primitive natural religion that had been with humans since creation. So he was not doing something radically new or innovative or bringing some revelation that had never been heard before. Jesus was calling people back to the original state of pure natural religion. This primitive religion is the original Christianity. So the Old and New Testaments are true in an allegorical sense and in any ways that they align with logic and reason. Just like the definition of deism, this doesn't necessarily fit with what most people would identify as Christian. So Tyndall as a Christian deist, he rejected the idea that special revelation was given only to certain people. 
He also traced much of the traditions to other ancient peoples so that what is a sign of the covenant or the uniqueness of Israel in the Old Testament is really borrowed from even more ancient pagan practices. Tyndale then measures all these practices against logic and reason and uses allegory to understand the narratives if they don't measure up. Tyndall's goal is to return to the pure primitive religion God has given all people. The Bible is just one retelling of this pure faith, even though it has some flaws that need to be fixed so that it better fits with the pure universal of natural religion, it still is essentially true. And the major figures in there, Jesus being the most recent, but also major figures like Moses or Solomon, were bringing people back to this pure universal natural religion, not the corrupt form of Christianity or Judaism as we have them today. So this is where I will leave us today. If you liked this episode, please rate and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you are listening, and tune in in two weeks for a response to Matthew Tyndall in Daniel Waterland. Thank you for listening to Old Testament Studies and Unacademic Modern History. If you'd like to contact me with episode ideas, questions, comments, or just deeper discussion about Old Testament or ancient Hebrew linguistics and scholarship, feel free to email me at modernoldtestamentstudies at gmail.com. Again, thanks for listening.